What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I am your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game, often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. Guys, real quick before we begin, just want to ask you a quick favor. If you can, please stop what you're doing and leave a review for the podcast. Whatever platform you're listening in on, if you can give us a five star or whatever the highest rating is, it would be fantastic. And even better, if you found it useful in any way, please write that down on a very brief review if that's possible. It makes such a difference to how the podcast is received out there and pushed out on various platforms. That's all, nothing else to ask. Now let's get on with the show. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode. And this week is episode 156. And in the 156 episodes that we've had, we have never once had a return guest. And that changes today. My guest this week is a person who was on this podcast almost exactly two years ago. It was March 2021. And at that time, he had doubled his portfolio from 200 properties to 400 properties in the space of about a year during the COVID pandemic. And now, as I'm going to learn today, he has got his portfolio closing in on 600 units. And this is from a person who bought his first unit in 2011. So not bad for 12 years work. I am, of course, talking about Adam Lawrence. And today's podcast is a masterclass in property investment and how to scale your portfolio. And uh, you're going to need a notebook for this one because there's tons and tons of tips, strategies and value. And so without further ado, my conversation with Mr. Adam Lawrence. Adam G. Lawrence, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me again, Gavin. Yeah, uh, Adam, you are one, the, the our first return guest. So that sets you up now for a, uh, we better get this, uh, we better make this an epic one for, considering you're back for the, for the second. It's just alphabetical order, Gavin, isn't it? Let's face it. That's all it was. That's all it was. <laughs> we didn't have enough time the last time. So uh, today what we're going to do is, um, I've, what I've, I've just mentioned to you, I, I'm going to post a link to our previous discussion so we can do away with all of the, the backstory and stuff like that and just move forward with the conversation. And obviously, it's now almost exactly two years um, since our previous discussion. And a lot has changed in that time. We were in the midst of the COVID lockdowns and all that kind of stuff. And at the time, you had hit 430 properties. Um, and I can remember you had said that basically that had that was double your portfolio in the space of like 12 months or something. And since then, there's obviously quite a change in market conditions, interest rates, all of that. So there's a lot to talk about. And obviously, when I'm introducing you, I, previously, I would have said that you're a property uh, investor, but also I see that you like the term economist in, in your title there. And so that is particularly apt given what's happened to the market. And uh, and so I'm going to go into some of that. I mean, the fact that interest rates have, you know, jumped the way they have and, and all that. Clearly, there's a lot of 
property investors out there scratching their heads, trying to figure out what to do, what does the future hold, all of that stuff. So lots of good stuff to uh, to get into. Um, first thing I think we'll get into is, you know, when I when I, when we talked before, you had gone from 200 units to 430 units, and now we're at 550 units. Um, and you know, it's it's the growth that you experienced before obviously has slowed down somewhat, and that's probably a you know a consequence of the market and finding deals and stuff like that. So, give us your you know the last two years. How has the market changed for you, and like what has that done to your portfolio? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's probably the two major drivers, and like you say, Gavin, correctly, the the interest rate is definitely definitely one of them, and then the results impact on the market. But also, um, we've trimmed off some certain bits of stock as well. So I've never been much of a seller. Never really got into this to be a seller of property, particularly. But the the market was so strong in 22. And there were prices being achieved for things that I thought, well, you could go five years without seeing those prices achieved there again. Um, and it just made sense in terms of rebalancing some of the leverage that we were using as well. So being very conscious of going back to our previous conversation, starting to be concerned that inflation was going to be an issue in the market. It's obviously proved to be more correct than I would have liked it to be, to be honest. And inevitably, the interest rate's gone up on the back of all of that. And I, I mean, one of the things that stopped us quite a bit in 21 was definitely the market running away with things and me just putting my foot down and saying, I'm not chasing the prices. I'm not chasing the prices. And so a lot of deals slip through the fingers. A lot of my uh, contacts and the people that I do a lot of business with, or, or certainly did a lot of business with before the pandemic, they dried up in terms of their deal pipelines and their, their lead generation. Um, they struggled and, and some of them furloughed. You know, it's still an option to furlough your businesses and stuff like that. So people were on stayed on furlough for a lot of 2021 um, who were involved in all of that. And then 22, I think we sold off about 50-odd, maybe 60 units in total in 2022. So the net, buying-wise, we've still slowed down a bit, but it's the, the net position has still been growing. And it's changed the underlying leverage metrics within the group, which I was keen to do because I felt, at very low interest rates, you know, money was nearly free and it was a lot easier to take bigger risks at this sort of level where you still not reach the peak and we still don't really know where the peak is and we're still kind of waiting for things to, to drop off um, and hope we stay below sort of 5% base right now. It's a very different kettle of fish and we're having to, to buy things with a different mindset whereby we're looking for strong rents to start with, but also ability for strong rental growth. So it's kind of a, it feels like a very commercial mindset when, you know, the sort of things that REITs have been doing for years where they're buying into a particular sector because they, like industrial would be a good example, you know, they felt there's a lot of very strong rent growth there. And that has meant, you know, really, really good returns. I think historically, residents have not really had that, that, uh, that tilt to them, but just because of the inflation, apart from anything else, they're getting dragged upwards. And because they can't pass the interest coverage ratio tests in a lot of parts of the UK now, um, rents are having to come up for people to get involved in the market. And supply is obviously a big problem as well. So mm -hmm. there's those, those two things that really have driven um, 
inevitable slowdown, but also a, a sort of net shift in funding structure and the corporate finance side of it, I suppose, Gavin. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that you've mentioned that sort of sticks out for me is just the fact that you're not going to chase the market. And if and that speaks to discipline, obviously. And um, I can remember when we spoke before, we said, you know, what is the long-term goal? And you kind of said, well, you know, really you could go to 10,000 units, really. But obviously in a low interest rate environment, that is more of a realistic kind of objective than when you're into this situation now. And being disciplined is obviously a key point as to staying in business in the first place, because, you know, you go and chase that leverage and then find yourself in a whole world of pain uh, without suddenly sort of seeing it coming around and biting you in the ass the way it uh, it has done for some people. Um, in terms of, you know, scaling your business, it's a combination of debt and partnering with others. And starting with, you know, the partnership side to it, um, what would you say are the, you know, the three primary sort of key points to, to successful partnerships? I mean, you've got, you're not a seller, as you've said before, um, generally speaking. Um, I presume that your partnerships are still intact and you don't have people saying, now we'd like to get out. And so what do you think are the kind of the primary elements that keep sort of partnerships together and, uh, you know, just for people that are out there thinking about attracting outside capital in for the first time, what would you say are the pointers towards making that successful? It's a great, it's a great question, Gavin. If I was going to give you three, I would say, first of all, it's setting the expectations from the start. What are they going to do? What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? What are you going to do if something changes? Right? How are you going to deal with things like that? And then that probably leads a little bit onto point number two, which would be communication. So you need and want, and if you're thinking about attracting, uh, in, even if it's private debt or if it's if it's equity, joint venture stuff for the first time, then there, there's a whole range of people out there from people who, you know, really take that, I do business with people I know, like, and trust very seriously. And they don't even want to hear about the detail. They just trust you to get on with it, get on with it and show it. The money in the bank will be the, the proof in the pudding, if you like. All, all the way through to people who want every single ind individual detail about what speck of drywall screws you might be using or, or whatever. And that, and it, it, <laughs> I see you smiling because I know you've probably, you've probably seen both ends of this spectrum <laughs> and everything in between over the years, right? And that might be a big problem for you because you might not have the time to deal with all of that. Um, and you might not know what spec of drywall screws you're using because you don't need to because you've got someone you trust doing that doing that yeah. side of things for you. Um, so that the, the right level of communication and the right channels, you know, I see this becomes more and more of a problem as time goes on because, you know, I know this is going to be on YouTube. I think YouTube is the greatest educational resource of all time. I, I think it blows away anything that's come before YouTube and the likes, it's just an incredible thing, right? But then these days, we could have talked by email, SMS. We could have picked up the phone like the old-fashioned way. You know, we could have talked on Messenger, WhatsApp, Telegram. You know, the, the list is endless. So how do people want to be communicated with? And can you meet those expectations is important on both ends, I think. And, and then the final one, and it's not really like I, I want to rank them in any way of hierarchy, really, but the third one would be transparency. 
because especially when you've got more than one thing going on, right? And I, I've become, without ever thinking about it or, or really needing to think about it too much, a bit of master of, you know, of managing conflicts of interest in situations because I might have this, this, and this going on and this, this and this might be part of this one deal. What I don't want is my business partner sitting there thinking, well, it's okay because he's giving money off here and there and everywhere. So you get around that, in, or I get around that, by offering as much transparency as anybody wants, right? Now, if we then still can't get somewhere where people are comfortable, it might be better if we don't work together in the first place, right? Because people sometimes think, uh, and this, this, this can sometimes blow up into huge conglomerates, get in situations where they've got to this, build this big beast, and actually they'd be better off selling two or three parts of the beast off. Yeah. Because it's not it's not profitable. They can't focus on everything. You know, some of the strands that I have in my group are there so that we can control things or we can influence the quality of things. Like compliance would be a good example, right? We're not directly trying to monetize compliance. We're trying to do what we need to do to do a good job, to do a proper job, to be ethical, and to make sure those boxes are ticked, right? We're better off doing that and controlling that in-house than we are outsourcing that because you know it's one of those things you can outsource it but it's still your ass on the line at the end of the day so actually maybe you are better off to try and control some of those things so transparency is useful um and it also does weed people out because if people think you know there's that old story of the you know the mechanic fixes the ship and uh, it taps the taps it on the side and it, it, it fixes it and it can it can uh, go back to sea and he charges 50 grand for the privilege or whatever and they say 50 grand for five minutes work. And he says, no, 50 grand for 30 years to know where to tap the ship on the side, right? Yeah. That's where sometimes people think they're going to get everything for nothing. And again, it's not the sort of partnership. From, from being in a few partnerships for, for years and years, you know, if people have got unrealistic expectations about what you will do or what they will get from you, at some point, the notion of equity in terms of fairness becomes... I think, you know, and if you're doing much more than you're being remunerated for, or they're not keeping up their end of the bargain, or you're not keeping up your end of the bargain, that needs to come out sooner rather than later, because otherwise it can be problematic. But I would say if you can tick all those boxes and yet do try and work with people who've got similar values to yourself, otherwise there's no point trying to pursue this life of the freedom, the theoretical freedom of the entrepreneur, right? There's no point trying to do that and then be unhappy about who you're working with because you might as well go and get a corporate job, you know? So you have to think about that as well. That's a great question. I love love that question. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, I can remember before when we spoke, you've you've got the discipline to look for the diversification of your partnerships and stuff. And just so that you don't have a situation where a person comes along and says, listen, I'm getting a divorce. I need to get out of this business or whatever. And that's it. You know, you're in, in, in dire straits. So you've been very disciplined in, in splitting it off. But you mentioned the fact that there's always going to be a risk of somebody saying, hold on a second, that deal, maybe I would have liked that deal that you've bought with this other partnership. How do you manage some of those, um, some of those conflicts, potential conflicts? Yeah, so again, probably transparency being the best one in that everybody knows about everybody else. And also people understand where they are in the hierarchy of, well, where's the next deal going, you know? So I've tried to foster a real mindset of abundance where even though deals are scarce, 
they're always scarce in every environment, right? But really, we want to be able to worry about the next one, not this one. So it does. I've very much trained my my brain to think. Well, do you know what? If I if I'm working with someone and they're going to get fifty percent of the of the if we're working on a lead generation strategy, let's say, and they want to keep some stuff for themselves, I just force myself to say, well, do you know what? Well done. You've got that one. Move on. I look forward to the next one. You know, and I, and I kind of try and foster that mindset in my business partners as well because realistically, we can do things that most people can't. We're very very good buyers of property, of residential property, right? And not many people have got all of the skill sets and the connections and the, the stuff at their disposal that we've now got. Um, so really, and I've had people say this to me before, you know, I wouldn't mind your cast-offs, you know, because they're yeah. still good deals. But I'm, I'm very rigid with what I will consider us to put through. But then also that changes over time as the external landscape changes because at the moment, you know, higher cash flow is is at more of a premium than it was in my book, especially if there's a good chance for rent growth. Um, whereas some of these lower yielding properties, you know, the, the, the amount of stock in the UK that is investment grade, as I would see it, as in you can sustain it with a buy-to-let mortgage at a reasonable rate, has dropped massively yeah. just because of the, the maths have dropped it massively and the rents are pushing back upwards. But Capital growth came first, rents catching up, capital values wobbling a bit, you know, that's sort of where we are. So, so yeah, and if people aren't going to really get upset about that, then we shouldn't be working together. And if we are already working together and they get in a big tears about that, then let's find a, you know, it's not like every partnership I've ever been in is now still going to this day. Some have got divorced, right? Some have wanted to move on and we've always had an amicable way to get out of it because I start from the point of view of, Let's be inherently fair, but also I'm thinking the one really, really scarce resource is time. And if I'm spending my time in the wrong partnership, it means I'm not spending it in the right partnership, and that costs everybody, yeah. you know, an, an unknowable amount of not just money but satisfaction from what yeah. we do, apart from anything else. So I think you've just got to have there's quite often difficult conversations to be had, but they need to be had out in the open, not from people sort of worrying about things behind there you know i had one partner who was constantly worrying i was taking backhanders off people or getting backhanders from them and all of this stuff and in the end i i, I felt it was more speaking to the way that they would have approached the problem yeah and, I, and you know and i did i said to them with all respect there's 50 ways i could get money out of this that you'd never know right that you haven't even considered right but i don't spend my time doing that and considering them right it's not what I do. My reputation is built on the back of being, you know, fair-minded and transparent. So if, if we can't go forward, there, there we are. So be it. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of just the, 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 the split of your different partnerships and stuff, how much of it would you say are those silent, non-operational partners versus the kind of the hands-on operational? That's a really good question. Um, and I would say silent wise is less than 50% of, of my operation as it stands at the moment um, from a balance sheet perspective. From an equity perspective, they would be more than 50% because they don't need or want as much. Some of them don't even want any leverage. Um, so right. the, the, the answer definitely flips across, across the two. Um, but then some of them have also made longer-term commitments to I will contribute X every year to us building a company together. 
we've got the terms, we've got a 20-year plan, you know, which is perfect for investment property. Perfect sort of time scale. That actually leads me to my next question. I was saying that, you know, uh, capital partners and, and debt. In terms of the debt, you know, like I can remember before you you, you used the term that you have a sensible leverage, uh, you know, and to different people that will mean different things. Like give us an, an idea what would be, well, is there a typical deal or do you have such a diversity that it, there's no typical deal? But just give us some idea of how you keep yourself from getting into difficulty with interest rates. So, yeah, great question. So at the start, very much the core of the, and, and what still remains is, and will remain as the core of the portfolio has been single houses, ideally semi-detached, ideally three-bed, but we haven't always been able to, to stick to that side of things. But the point is they're easily resaleable. If you've got 180 days or thereabouts, you're going to get full value for it on the open market. If you need to liquidate it more quickly, if you've got 45 days, you can get rid of it through an auction, right? So if you if you need it quicker than 45 days, you're in distress, realistically. Yeah. So yeah. We've, we've never got to that stage just yet. I'm also primarily, we've sold stuff through auction that we know will sell well through auction because we look at a lot of auction stuff. So we know, we know what goes well and what doesn't. Or that, you know, as you, as you push, and we're doing this at the moment, pushing more towards cash flow in the now, you are tending to buy quirkier buildings or buildings that will only trade through auction unless you put together a, a large enough portfolio to sell to an institutional investor, a, a REIT, set up a REIT, some, something like that. Um, so that does introduce a bit of extra risk. And that I, I'm, not, I'm not, not cognizant of that extra risk that we're taking on at the moment, but we're starting to look at uh, properties or uh, portfolios and say, well, with this path of rents that we think are likely over the next five years, actually, that's what's making the investment work. And we're still looking to use five-year fixed mortgages where we can, which keeps our, even if the cost of debt is quite high, especially compared to historical reasons, as long as we've got headroom and growth, then if we've bought it at the right sort of price, we're not taking too much of a risk, realistically. And we can still liquidate at, even, even the, the recent ones at 75 pence in the pound and get our money back out from where we are in terms of the finished products. Right. So I think people could often look at it as what's the number? Do you have to be at 75% loans of value across the board? Well, that's that's impossible with the strategy that I've put together because we are always buying and refinancing in separate tranches. So we avoid those D-day scenarios where interest rates just gone up to 10% or Liz Trust has just come in some power yeah. <laughs> or whatever it is, right? We, 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 we deliberately diversified away from all of that. Although I did start to break a lot of mortgages that still had one to two years left on the term in early to mid-2022 when I felt the writing was very much on the wall. So that gave us a lot of extra, what is now looks like very cheap debt, but there were early repayment charges to pay and also, it means in 2027, I've got a bit of a situation there. Now, I've got years to manage that situation, and some of it depends on volume that comes in, and some of it depends on the path of the interest rate between now and then. But it gave me that clear water to, to sort of trade through. So if, if there's a number, what, what I like about Resi is you can go a bit more 
aggressive than commercial on the LTVs. You know, we're under 60 at the moment. I, I wouldn't really want to be much over 60 at the moment, to be honest, because of the, the volatile nature of the, of the situation. Um, whereas I think commercial, you'd probably be feeling 50 historically has been safe as anything, but maybe at the moment you'd rather be more like 40. And it, of course, it depends what you, what your commercial is such a big, you know, is it hotels or is it office or is it what, what, what industrial, whatever it is, you know. Um, so it can be, can be a function of the number. But I think also I, I've looked at different metrics over the last sort of 18 months. How much floating rate debt have we got versus how much fixed rate debt have we got? The fixed rate debt, are there covenants still in there to have them revalued or ask for more money or all the other things that the bigger high street operations can normally do with your, your funding and what risk? And I, I was cognizant of that from the 2008 situation and mm. learned the lesson from other people, if you like, without, without it being my own money, um, which is handy. Uh, and, and I still haven't moved too far away from that. So one of the reasons why we didn't buy so many units in 2022 was because we had all of this refinancing to do and I was spending, I mean, it was fun, but it was hard in terms of the amount of time, the amount of thinking time I needed every week was really, you know, double-digit hours of how are we going to navigate through this? Um, and, and also the sheer administration side, that the small tick box lenders have their advantages, but you try and do 200 remortgages in six months. I mean, it's a nightmare. We're not a huge team. And, you know, in getting people in, we're not. A, we're also not a traditional property company. So when someone comes into the organisation, you've got to train them from scratch. They haven't worked for your competitor who did it like you did because yeah. I've not come across to I've not come across too many people who do it like we do really. So there's a there's an upside to that and there's a downside, obviously. But that's the that's the sort of thinking on. I looked at floating versus fixed, and then I also looked at just how much other debt is there around and about, whether it be bounce back loan or whether it be personal debt, or whether it be private debt that's been used for other things. Where is all of the leverage? What rate is it at? When does it need to go back? And then how exposed are we to a 10 of? Because obviously the market went up so quickly without any really, you know, the fundamental reasons are economic. They're not, oh, yeah, we're all short of houses. We know all of that. But houses weren't going up 12% in 2019, right? So we know something's changed. Could we see a bit of a deflation? Of course, we're we're arguably in the middle of seeing that bubble just slightly burst before it got too too big. And arguably, the market is down 5% if you listen to Nationwide. I'm not really seeing that on the ground quite yet in terms of what we're – because we're still selling a few. I've still got a few that are around there on the market. Um, But it's definitely softened. I mean, we were selling stuff last year. We had these – we'd have it in the book at – 125 grand for the sake of a number, right? The agent would come out and tell us to put it on at 140 and we'd sell it at 147 within 48 hours. I mean, that's how good the market was. And that's why we had to release some stuff, you know, because it was just the the diversification of when you take some of your profits and it enabled us to rebalance some of those ratios that I was talking about. Um, But it it never wanted to be a big... uh, there, There were a couple of other driving factors like got heavily involved in South Wales before the toll came off the bridge, you know, um, before a lot of the, 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 the South of England market started running over to South Wales as well. 
we had a they did very well during COVID. You know, prices up 30, 35% in some areas. And we thought, well, I looked at it and said, is there a reason why Wales should outperform the rest of the UK going forwards? I can't find one. So perhaps if we take some of that equity, because the thing is, the downside of that, I guess, is return on equity point of view, the returns on equity in real time are quite poor if you don't believe the capital growth is going to continue because you're getting a, a relatively modest rent and suddenly you've got, you know, in, in a relatively small investment, you may be at 40% loans of value. Well, it might be quite a good idea to liquidate that and then reuse that equity to do something bigger and better with, which we, which is some of what we've done. You know, we, we uh, the best deal we did last year, and it wasn't like they, were, they weren't linked, these two things, but they just happened to settle in the same week. You know, we sold a house and we used the deposit on that to buy a portfolio of 12 flats that spread across six semi-detached houses with a much bigger rent roll, with mm. a great, great strengthening of the balance sheet. Um, and that was just from, from one house that we, we got the money wow. to do that. So that was a that was the yeah, one of the one of the high points of last year, probably. <laughs> and tell me this what you were mentioned, like 200 mortgages and, and things like that. I mean, how are you very disciplined on staying away from cross security and things like that? Do you keep them all in separate buckets? Yes, absolutely. So I think the the, the high level rules: no more than twenty five percent of debt with one lender and, and one group. You know that that's the way I would absolutely look at it. Um, obviously, the thing is for the smaller loans, you're still signing PGs for the whole yeah. amount, so there is that cross collateralization. But then. You, I, I have rationalised this over the years by putting into context, okay, yes, I am signing a PG, but I've got a house here that's worth 125 grand. I know I could sell for that, that the value has told me is only worth 115, that they're only lending me 80 grand against, and the PG is there for the difference. Now, if that got swiped, it'd have to get trashed, and I'd have to go bankrupt at the same time for the lender not to get their 80 grand back. Yeah. So... I, I, I use 10% of that exposure from the average PG, but then it's in a, it's in a graded way. So once we're well, once that 125 grand house is worth 140 and the mortgage is still only 80, there's no real exposure to me on the personal guarantee as I see it. Because prices aren't volatile. If it was commercial, yeah. again, I'd be I'd be, it'd be a different conversation. But more concerned. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting. Um in terms of Adding value. And when we were talking before, you mentioned that your portfolio is well, like you, you started out looking at HMOs and all flips and things like that, but you've gone more to the buy to let vanilla, pretty unsexy, but stable and 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 kind of nice returns. How much of your, you know, the projects that you take on would be opportunities to add value versus just simply rent and set and forget? So I think we've we've always added value in different ways. In the older days, we 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 did it by you know stronger asset management, converting a property into a different, uh, effectively a different use class when you when you're making it into an HMO, you know, um, and then went on to add value through refurbishment. You know, really tax efficient, um, lots of good ways to do it. Certain tricks that that, that the homes stay away from the homes under the hammer brigade, you know. Um, and, that, and that really died off a lot during the pandemic because there was so such a shortage of stock and so much money out there that was trying to buy it, right? So we had to then look at adding value through, can we improve the tenancy? 
can we improve the use of the building? So we uh, we 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 found a commercial property where it was all commercial use. It was a classic sort of shop and top situation. And the rent that was being paid was about 25% of what you would get from the building as a finished product. So we made it into a finished product. The business is still trading out there successfully. They've just got less of the building than they did before. And they're paying a bit more rent for it, to be honest. But they have also had a lot of things renewed and they're they're very happy with the building. Um, And so asset management in that way kind of opportunities have become more to the fore um, just because of the way the market has gone. And if, uh, you know, we've bought a few where the EPC is at illegal levels, to be honest with you, and the landlord hasn't raised the rent for 10, 20 years. Um, yeah. And rather than just sort of brute force, right, all we need to do is double the rent or evict the tenant or whatever, we've actually looked at the, the – I mean, I'll give you an example of one. We bought a five-bed house that had a tenant in that had been in there for 22 years. Wow. Um, at one point – uh, she's she's a retired lady now. At one point, she had five kids and she needed those five bedrooms, right? She's paying £350 rent, which, uh, you know, something in treble that probably would have been about the market price. But in reality, there was a bigger problem. She couldn't afford to put the heating on because right. the house is too big for her requirements, right? So we, we own a letting agency in that town, found her another property and redeveloped the house into three two-bedroom flats. Um, so the old classic cliche win-win situation, I know. But so, you know, adding adding by maximising the scope of already built buildings um, and also just improving tenancies in general, um, whether that be EPC, whether that be other problems that haven't been sorted out. The, the old way of, right, which is almost like the, the 70s, really, you know, you don't say anything, but you can never put my rent up. Although legally that all changed with the Housing Act 88, some cult, the culture is still that way in certain landlord-tenant relationships, yeah. And it's just it's just not a doable thing anymore because of compliance, because of all of the reasons why you can't do that. And so we we bought stuff from landlords who are who know they've got to take some action, but they just don't know, and they don't want to evict the tenant in order to make a sale. And they know they've had their money back four times over out of that property or whatever, and they're, they're happy to move it on and let someone else deal with the it's a different problem to solve i suppose yeah. so it's always us getting paid for solving problems um it's just that that problem has changed over the years or we've changed with the market all those problems are still there but we've kind of changed which ones we take on i suppose yeah interesting um adam you mentioned epc and that's something i wanted to ask you about energy performance um i mean when we talked before we touched on sustainability as uh, a growing risk for portfolio owners because obviously we're all moving towards this you know reduced carbon and all that you still see that as a risk has has the climate changed uh, <laughs> <to use> the <laughs> I see what you did there Gavin I see what you did um, I mean obviously this sort of recent climb down from the UK government around or from from England, England pushing it down to pushing it out to 2028 in theory um, rather than 2025 is somewhat sensible. But, I mean, I've always maintained, regardless of the actual year, this is the direction of travel, and everybody does need to get on board with the direction of travel. Now, one of the things that really annoys me is the problem is when someone stands up on top of a snooker table and releases a load of orange powder or whatever, you just 
it just moves us away from the right conversations to be having and it starts a whole load of new conversations which you know you lose 70 people don't realize but you lose 70 80 percent of the population when you do something like that because they just think you're a bloody idiot what are you doing why why are you doing that you know these climate warriors kind of yeah this is it and that's been the way you know for not, not just eco action but lots of pressure group style action over the years that that's a tried and tested path, unfortunately. Um, so, look, we definitely need to do something about it. And insulation in terms of retrofit is the way forward. There's been some crazy figures quoted. There'll be the typical problems that there are. The only organisation that can do this is the government. Yeah. One of the fears that I always have in these situations is actually being an economist. This is usually a way of redistributing wealth the wrong way, right? Because but there is a chance here that it could go the right way if it's done correctly. Because ultimately, if the government pays, it means we all pay. So tax dollars pay, right? How do we fill the tax coffers? How do we allocate those resources? If we're just giving people like me who own 550 properties free money to upgrade all these properties, am I not going to be the one who's best off? Well, at the moment, interestingly, no, I'm not. Because the market doesn't really recognise yet the difference between an EPCE and EPCC, it doesn't really recognise it at all. Now, I think that will start to change, but certainly doesn't in the, the markets that I operate in. But if we do the, if we get the upgrades done, it is the money that it's keeping in the tenant's pocket because it's not leaking out of the rubbish old windows or the wooden front door or, or, whatever, or the, the inefficient boiler or whatever it is. So there is a way of doing this in a redistributive way, which I think is is sensible and needs to be done. Is it a risk? Well, the more, the, the biggest risk, I think, at the moment, Gavin, is if the government don't roll this out correctly and they don't communicate it correctly and they don't start with the right strategy, if they lose another 100,000 private sector landlords, the supply problems that are absolutely plaguing lots of the country at the moment, and it's not, I know it's not unique to, to England by any stretch, but these supply problems are going to get worse and worse and worse. And then rents will be up to affordability ceilings. And then there'll be a further problem because where will the new investment come from if the figures don't stack up anymore and base rate is 5%, you know? And, and these sort of COVID-related effects or COVID-stimulus-related effects, they take years and years and years to come through the pipeline. And the, the supply problem is just getting worse and worse at a rate that it's, you know, UK last year, net migration, 503,000, 174,000 new unit, new starts. You know, that's that's the biggest deficit I've ever seen yeah. since I've ever watched the figures by some way, you know. Um, so it needs to be done in the right way. I think it's a risk and an opportunity. I think like anything, uh, it will be those who can think their way around the problem um, that will make it work. There's tons of ways to make EPCs work for you and just – I mean, it beggars belief to me how many people don't even start by reading the report. <laughs> the, the, the next problem is the report isn't very good. <laughs> and that, that leads to other, other situations. But we're already working with a couple of companies who are putting together, um, who, are, who are doing some grant-led improvements with the permission and cooperation of the tenant. And that's not necessarily people in receipt of benefits. That's also uh, particularly low council tax funding which, of course, a lot of rental stock tends to fall into. So there's obviously 
I, I mean, I, I would like to think I keep a pretty good finger on the pulse. And my, the people in my team have gone out and found this stuff without being it handed to them. They've gone and picked the phone up, spoke to people relentlessly, really. And none of this is really in the property media that I can see. Um, and what that suggests to me is the government are trying a few things out. They don't want to release all of this at the same time. They've got three or four, five, six, seven schemes going on under the radar with private companies to do an acid test to see what's going to work. I, I really hope that's the case, Kathleen. Otherwise, yeah. I don't. It's the tenant who's going to suffer at the end of the day, and that's the worst part. That's the worst part of bad government policy. But well, well it's an interesting. I mean, to hear from you, you obviously you've got a large residential portfolio. I have a large commercial portfolio, and what we're seeing is that um, assets are becoming stranded quite quickly because of mm. the cost of refurb and stuff like that. And what we're also seeing, which is interesting, is the banks are now very conscious and aware of five years from now when we come to refinance. Will your portfolio be at a at, at a level that will allow us to? Because we've got all sorts of commitments to you know get our portfolio green and things like that. So yeah, yeah. It, there's definitely a risk factor out there um, yeah. that your assets may fall in value, but also that you may not be able to refinance them. You know, and so yeah. this is this is interesting. Um, get let's move on to the economy because obviously you know. The, your economist hat on. I'd like to just, you know, the UK. It's taken a battering um, in the last, you know, with the Liz Truss uh, holiday uh, in in uh, Ten Downing Street, and uh, it's. I mean, did you first of all? Did you see yourself scrambling to react to the sudden spike in interest rates that was reported and things like that? Well, I, I was quite lucky, really, because the amount of cognitive effort I'd put in had led me to understand the direction of travel and a lot of these mortgage applications were already underway. So my my, my scrambling was more, is this all going to stay in bed now the bond yields above 5% for the 30 year because I'm worried there's going to be no lending if this doesn't calm down. But luckily, once again, the Independent Bank of England came in and did the right thing. Um, yep. And I think maybe people don't appreciate just how right they got what they did. It was one of those rare government interventions where we actually made some money out of it as well. It was great. Although, unfortunately, the money we made was probably off pension funds selling it a loss, not uh, yeah. not, not hedge funds who had a very, very good day after they'd taken quasi out to dinner or whatever they had to do to get the inside track on, the, on what was going to happen in that budget, you know. Um, so not so much scrambling on that front, but what it did do is it dramatically, you know, one of the things we have to do is predict the interest rate six to nine months in advance for refinances. And our predictions in early October were up to 7%. Well, not a lot of stuff that came across the desk would stack up. There's no two yeah. ways about it. Then there was suddenly sudden absolute rush to the door for resi auction stock because there were people on bridges or big organisations who were buying lots of property on bridges who couldn't refinance. So they're effectively stranded on a bridge, really, Gavin. Yeah. And, and so their immediate answer is, well, we bought it through auction. We just liquidate through auction. But because the market isn't that big for UK auction, it just blew up the, the stock numbers and the numbers. that the, the, I mean, this stayed out of the press, which is a good thing because creating panic when there is a real problem is not a good thing to do. But they were selling at 35 and 40%, and that's 
even worse than 2009 figures, realistically. Right. Mm. Um, but it was temporary. And that was it, it was a kind of a good stress test in real time. And I do think one day we will maybe thank Liz the Lettuce for just deflating that bubble before it got really bubblicious. Because you look at some of the international real estate markets and you think, well, if, it, if we put on 40% instead of 25, that could have been much more problematic as these things deflate. And you, you know, from the from the resin stranded assets perspective, I already feel quite strongly, I have done for years, that you'll have people who have stranded on help to buy mortgages from 2014 down in the southeast, you know. But because they tend to earn more money, pay a bit of capital down, they, they keep quiet. They're in these assets. They're not, they're not going to make any money out of that flat they bought in 2014 in 15 years' time. But they lived there. They didn't have to pay rent. It had some utility for them. So it doesn't sort of crystallise itself, whereas commercial is much more, right, well, we are here and we, yeah. we can't afford to get to here. We don't want to get to here. So we're going to put an end to it here sort of thing. And that's the the big difference that we're seeing, isn't it? It's playing out at the moment. But So there wasn't, there wasn't so much scrambling. There was a lot of... Um, the, the, the little bits of consulting that I do do for other, other businesses, there was a fair bit of time calming them down, um, especially early October. Um, and it was a very good time to have a conversation. We did have a, a lengthy conversation about um, what's better, debt or equity, which, of course, is always a bit of a uh, – there, no, there is no right answer to that, but things have changed. But if you're seeing things that will stack up, because there are definitely distress sales going on, you know, Perhaps sharing equity is the way forward. You might not like giving away 50% or 25% or 75% if the terms are incredibly favourable, but it might be better. You're not going to expose yourself to the risk that you can't afford to take at the moment. So it's a bit of a flexing of that um, that methodology or that, that mindset, really, I suppose, as well. And tell me this, like interest, not so much interest, inflation has been running at a level we haven't seen since the 1980s. And so, like, how do you predict what's coming when we haven't seen this for 40 years? It's, you know, it's kind of the, the jury is very much out. It's, you know, it's very, very hard to put any kind of hat on that sort of says, well, this is what we've done historically and therefore, because we'd be looking at much, much higher interest rates if that was the case. I mean... Yeah, I think I think that's I probably half agree with that because I think what what I did to try and educate myself was go back and look at several periods of inflation. So you know, in, in, when you start looking at house prices, are really interesting because the media wants us to look at nominal house prices and then moan about it one way or another, right? <laughs> but really, in this conversation, we need to have that conversation in the context of real house prices. So inflation adjusted. If, at really simple terms, 2022 ends up level in nominal terms, but inflation was 8%, well, houses are 8% more affordable in real terms, right? Now, if food is 20%, there's another problem there. And then energy prices are wherever they're going to end up. There's, there's potentially other problems, potentially benefits there. But you, you have to look at core inflation, I think, and you have to look at those different periods. So... Where was the housing market at when we went into this period of inflation? Well, it started to inflate quite significantly. But in this day and age, we had a whole decade in 2010s where the housing market wasn't that exciting. All right, if you were in certain parts of London early on or Bristol yeah. or this or that, there were pockets. There are always pockets of interest. But Scotland was up 8% in 
in the 2010s in nominal terms in terms of transactions. Now, that, that, that therefore, it was more affordable in real terms. But therefore, there was so much more expansion possible on the back of that that when it did expand by 25%, it wasn't in the, in the long term a real problem. Whereas if you look at the 80s, where I think the average house price in the UK went from 20K in 1980 to 60K in 1987, right? Mm-hmm. So we're talking 200% in seven years, right? Yeah. And then it went down to about 55K in 1993 or so. Now, that doesn't tell the whole story because there was massive inflation in that period there, which, which knocked things quite a lot. And you go back and look at the London market then, and between 1990 and 1997, the residential London property market did not move forward at all. And people people forget all these things. So you've yeah. got to look at the context where inflation really came in. That's how, that's how I do it. And I look at it and think, right, so in the 70s, for example, inflation wasn't that damaging to house prices, right? Yeah. Now, a lot fewer people are on floating rate mortgages. There's a lot lower, there's a lower percentage of mortgage debt out there. You know, the average LTV across the UK is under 25%, which mm-hmm. is unbelievable. How much gearing there isn't when you think about it. Yeah. And it's it's very different from the old, you know, or interest rates went up to 15% overnight or whatever. And you think about that, you know, when when they withdrew Myris, it was always going to be a big deal, right? It was a a step change to the market that we wouldn't dare do anything like that these days, realistically. So I, I think it's not that the problem can be, and I think a lot of the bigger companies suffer from this. It's all mathematical modelling, right? And I, I love mathematical models. I've, I've been involved in them in different ways for years. But sometimes it doesn't work anymore when the last 40 years of data maybe needs a big pinch of salt adding to it. Yeah. You've got to go back and look at the 30s, the 70s, the 80s. The 90s. You've got to look at those, those times and see how what, what impact did it have and where were we when we came in? Because today's it's fair to say, you know, if we get base to five, that probably is equivalent to ten percent in the in the eighties. It's not equivalent to fifteen, right? Yeah. But in old money, it would be that sort, and and it's not going to be sustainable at that sort of level, Gavin, for for a, a period of time. But it doesn't mean it can't stay up there for two or three years if that's what needs to happen to get over the inflation wave. But yeah. once that core has gone, and that core is now sort of six point two in the UK, that's people's expectations for wage rises. And then yeah. you get into the wages go up, then prices go up, then wages go up, then prices, and you, you change, and that's what really needs to be contained. Um, yeah. Which the government, the government is loosely trying to do a job of, but then that's just their default position anyway. So yeah, I'm not sure with how much skill they're doing that, but that's a different conversation. A wage price spiral—that's all we need now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, Adam, I, I, I'm watching the time a little. Um, I, I threw a, it out to my. Uh, to my audience, I asked, you know, I'm, I'm bringing Adam back again. And does anyone have any questions? And a couple of questions. We've obviously covered the interest rates there. Um, I have a question from somebody wondering, conversion from commercial to residential. Do you see opportunities there? I think, I think definitely. I think I've had better opportunities from buying buildings that were converted under PD before PD looked like it does today. So minimum space, I find the minimum space requirements a bit perplexing, to be honest, Gavin, because, you know, you can't have a flat under 37 and a half square metres unless planning allow it. 
but you can have an HMO room at 6.57 square metres. So there's no, you know, mixing between the two, which which doesn't seem right to me. So uh, often the smaller buildings that are sort of 20 to 30 square metre studios are much more functional and stack up more on an investment style basis. Now, obviously, this depends on where you're doing it, because some planning authorities will be open to that kind of commercial argument. Most of them will close the door on that sort of argument, and that's part of the problem. It's harder to make them stack, although it depends on the size. It depends on the where, – where can you get the edge from, I suppose, is always going to be the question. Can yeah. you get – you know, and what are you doing with the end product? Are you just doing it as vanilla? Are you selling it? Or is there an opportunity for running a, a more intensive strategy like a serviced accommodation that is going to be the cherry on the top and that's going to make it a really nice deal. So definitely worth looking at, but not the definitely not the holy grail, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And tell me this, the evolution of the hybrid and work from home, have you seen that sort of appearing in your portfolios at all? I mean, that's been a fascinating thing because I think there's, and you, you know, you see this with a lot of commercial, and there's also been a lot of commercial stock that's been moved on, but also a lot of willing buyers as sort of, the asset management side has really changed. And I think the most interesting stuff I see out there at the moment is office buildings of a certain size, where I think the only chance they've got as office in this current environment is by becoming smaller offices, right? But they'll sit on the market for what feels like forever, trying to let a 5,000 or 7,000 square foot office that I just think there isn't much take up for that stuff at the moment. Yeah. So. I think the opportunity in there to carve them up, and it might be repurposed, you know, it might be repurposed, um, and it might be partially resi, it could be all, all sorts of different stuff, but the, even just just shortening the, the spaces that there are seems to me to be a bit of a no-brainer, but I know there's a lot of big institutions that don't actively get involved in anything like that, so they end up selling off sometimes too cheaply, and that's where the opportunities can be for those yeah. of us that can be bothered to get out of bed in the morning and do some stuff to buildings, you know. And like things like serviced offices and stuff like that there. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I think co-working, I, I, I see as generally overused. I think it's been sort of touted as a bit of a solution. It kind of works or it doesn't in certain locations. Yeah. And a lot of co-working schemes I've seen can be a bit white elephant, to be honest with you. Um, but in terms of the small, look, the, a small serviced office is like a small retail shop. There'll always be a have-a-go hero who's going to have a go at a business, at a new venture. And, and COVID started more of those than, you know, than in a normal year. So they yeah. need space and they need flexibility. Now, yeah, there's, there's, there's work, there's intensive management side of things to be done compared to just one nice 15-year lease with upward only rent reviews every three years. But some of that started to become a little bit of a thing in the past, to be honest, as you well know. So um, it, it's just... But having said that, the big stuff is still out there if you can give the client what they want. Um, and that's also a that's also a key. That's all that comes back to that sort of communication, doesn't it? As well. Yeah. Yeah. And tell me this, just I mean, something I've been paying attention to is chat GPT and artificial yeah. intelligence and all that. Like, do you see that as having a, a role in your business, just the the running and the streamlining? Um I mean, it's absolutely fantastic for knocking out frameworks of statements and various bits you can do for local authority communication and to an extent, a little bit of legal stuff. But 
I am concerned at the moment as to the accuracy of a lot yeah. of this stuff because it's not the whole – again, you don't want to just say, right, your job is to type this into chat GPT all day. You definitely can't do that, right? It's not It's not there yet. Um, but going forward, it definitely helps with various bits of communi- non-vanilla communications. You know, we all have our streamlined processes that are already in place, template letters and all that. And chat GPT is like this gigantic extension of the template letter as i see it at the moment um but it has this really weird it's a bit like google years and years ago everybody thought that just because you googled it it would be true and just because it was on wikipedia it would be true and you can't and maybe it's just that people like me are just difficult when they get out of bed in the morning but the, i've seen more that i want to question than i want to follow blindly you know and that's societal to an extent i guess but that's um i think it's it's an amazing tool but it's got a long a long way to go before it can um, really be relied upon to do things like legal work, yeah. for example. It'll be interesting. It, it is. It's. It's just evolving so quickly, though. It's on an exponential yeah. curve that you just, you know, maybe six months from now we'll be saying, "Wow, they perfected it." You know. <laughs> yeah, you know that Moore's law where the you know the, the power doubles every doubles, two yeah. every year and it, and it halves in size or whatever. It does seem to be going at at least twice that pace. You're yeah. quite right. It's, there's so much out there you can't keep track of everything that's that's sprung out there. So uh, ChatGPT is the it's just the uh, WorldCom or whatever it was that yeah. received Amazon. You know, there's going to be there's there, there'll be there'll be lots of interesting developments in that space. I don't. Um, we're at the end of our hour. I was going to just throw the final question to you. Five hundred and fifty units. Let's say I bring you back here in two years. What's the number? I hope it's I hope it's north of seven fifty. We'll, 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 I'm not going to say it now. I don't think we can get to a thousand quite in two years, but I hope it's north of seven fifty. Well, like, uh, Adam, I wish you the best of luck with it. Thanks so much for coming back on for the second time, and I'll be scheduling a call for two years from now, and you're going to get to work with that seven fifty. Um, if That's anyone, it. if anyone wants to uh, connect with you, reach out. What's the best way to find you? Yeah, Adam G Lawrence on LinkedIn. That's the that's the best way, definitely, because there's no no limits and, and this, that, and the other. And LinkedIn's a great resource for all of that. Brilliant. All right, Adam, take care and uh, thanks a million again. Oh, thanks for having me again, Gavin. Brilliant. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group that is called Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will find me on social media. My handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. You can stay up to date with all of my content and the various projects I'm working on over on my website, GavinJGallagher.com. And while you're there, please do add your name to the Join My Tribe thing over on the right-hand side. This will ensure you're kept up to date via my weekly newsletter. All of these links are in the show notes below. That's all for now. I will see you guys in the next episode.